Our first lesson comes from Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning at the 22nd verse. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you have come. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we believe you inspired your servant Ezekiel to record these words here in Ezekiel chapter 36. We believe these words not only had power in the day that they were written, but these words have power this day, this morning, because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, open this word for us, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ for the sake of the nations. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. You and I are living in Babylon more and more. And that's exactly where God wants his church to be. You and I are living in Babylon more and more, it seems, every day. And that is exactly where God wants his church to be. More and more, our world, our society is looking like the world of Ezekiel and his experience in Babylon. We have growing secularism, growing paganism, a growing intolerance for our faith. And we can biblically call this Babylon because throughout scripture from Genesis 11, where we first meet Babylon, Babel, all the way through Revelation, where Rome is now described as Babylon, Babylon for scripture is any society that is trying to build a name for itself apart from God. When we look at our world, we see more and more Babylon. I think Don McLean captured this well in his rendition of Psalm 137, the pain and the bleakness of what it is to live in Babylon. By the waters, the waters of Babylon, 
We lay down and wept and wept for thee, Zion. We remember thee, remember thee, remember thee, Zion. It's the same guy who wrote Bye Bye American Pie. But his rendition of Psalm 137 captures that sentiment of what it feels to live more and more in Babylon. But here's the good news. In Ezekiel 36, God gives us a vision and a promise about what it means for his people to live in Babylon. And here's the good news. The good news is that Babylon will know the Lord through his church. Babylon will know the Lord through his church, through his people living in Babylon. But not only that, Babylon will know the Lord through his church as his church is cleansed, a cleansed people among the Babylonians. And not just cleansed, but a people cleansed and then filled with his character. The Babylonians will know the Lord through God's church, cleansed and full of character. See, first Babylon, we're told, if you'll turn with me to Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 22. In verse 23, our text says these powerful words, that Babylon will know God through God's people, through God's church. Verse 23, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Through us, the Lord will have the Babylonians come to know him. And, and if we're honest, at least for me, I, I kind of was hoping for something a little more magical and a little less personal. Like I thought, couldn't you just sort of wave your hand over the Babylonians and deal with them? Why did you have to include me in the process, oh God? I mean, let's be honest. A lot of the angst that we experience as we sense more and more of a Babylonian culture around us, our prayer almost is like this, oh Lord, would you make this nation more Christian so that I don't have to work so hard to be a Christian? But see, God is taking back his world not through a program, not through a political election, but through people. One person at a time living in Babylon as his church. You know, oftentimes when we talk like this, it, it gives us this dystopian, apocalyptic vision of the future. I think Hollywood captures that a lot with disaster movies. You know, one of my favorite genres of disaster movies are the big asteroid coming to destroy the earth. You know, you think of Armageddon, you think of Deep Impact, those kind of movies. And, and here's the cool thing about it, is that NASA, interestingly, has a solution for that moment. Those movies are totally bunk. NASA's already figured out what to do when there's a world-killing asteroid coming at us. It's called the NEO Project. It's the Near Earth Object Project. And, and what NASA will do is they'll see that asteroid far, far off and, and will send out a satellite 
uh, to meet that asteroid. And that satellite's programmed to come right next to that world-killing asteroid, right next to it, and start exerting a gravitational pull. Just a small amount of gravity. But because it's so far out, that little bit of gravitational pull actually will change the total direct trajectory of that world-killing asteroid. It's called gravitational coupling. And I think it's one of the best examples of what missional living today is about. One person coming alongside another person and seeing their whole life trajectory changed by the gospel. That's what God is saying here through Ezekiel, is that the Babylonians will know him, the Lord, through his church. See, it's not an accident that you and I are living where we are, when we are. God has placed his people in Babylon for the sake of Babylon. God has placed us here for the sake of the Babylonians. Listen to the words of Jeremiah 29, another Babylonian prophet. Jeremiah 29 verse 7 says this, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. God has sent you, his people, into that city, in exile. Pray and seek for the city, the welfare of the city. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare, says Jeremiah. You're living in Babylon. You're called to seek the welfare of that city you live, to pray for it. And do you know what this means? It means we can all pray that the Dallas Stars win the Stanley Cup. And I base this on what Archbishop Bob Duncan, our first Archbishop, told me a few years ago when I took him to a Stars game. I said, Archbishop, wouldn't it be nice if we could really pray for our sports teams? And he says, you can totally pray for your sports teams. This is the Archbishop, okay? He's from Pittsburgh. He's thinking the Steelers and he's thinking the Penguins. They need as much help as they can get. But here's what he was saying. He was saying, God wants to bless the cities we live in. And what better way to bless our cities than for our sports teams to win? So you can pray. Let's all pray. Let's stop the sermon right now and just pray for the Dallas Stars to win this series. Seek the welfare of the city to which I have sent you. See, 2 Corinthians captures this idea of a church living in Babylon intentionally, purposefully, for the sake of the Babylonians. When Paul says this in verse 14, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession through the cities we live in, always spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. The church in Babylon is the aroma of the gospel. God will have the Babylonians know him through his church living in Babylon. But not only the church living in Babylon, through a cleansed church living in Babylon, we look at verse 25 and God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And we gotta realize immediately that the solution God gives isn't, I must wash those filthy Babylonians. He says, I must wash my church. 
I must cleanse my church. Because we are so good as the church in pointing fingers at an ever more Babylonian culture. But is it not true that we contribute to the Babylonian culture around us so much? I mean, I'll tell you, when we look at verse 22 and verse 23, this just strikes a chord of deep repentance within me. Verse 22, thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. And then verse 23 again says, my holy name that you have profaned among the nations. You know, in the book of Ezekiel, 28 times, God talks about Israel profaning his name. Three times he talks about the nations. The pagans profane his name three times in Ezekiel. We, 28 times to defile, to pollute it, to disregard his holy name. I mean, I can tell you, as someone who was converted into the church, one of the greatest barriers that any non-believer has to get over coming into the church of Jesus Christ is what we call the hypocrisy barrier, right? Every time we turn on the news and we hear about another sex abuse scandal being covered up in the Roman Catholic Church or evangelical church leaders removed from their offices, or just our own general cultural conformity where people look around and say, are those Christians actually living any differently in the culture? Every time the world sees that, they say, there's those Christians profaning God's name again. As 1 Peter chapter 4 says, judgment must begin in the household of God. We are idolatrous and we are very Babylonian. But here's the great thing. God doesn't cast us off. He says, I'll cleanse my church. I'll cleanse you. To repurpose you. See, as Christians, in one sense, we are cleansed at the most fundamental level in our baptism. Right? Peter, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, says, believe and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. In the waters of baptism we enter into a cleansing because of the completed work of Christ, we now stand justified, cleansed, forgiven, blameless before God. That is our standing before God because of our baptism by grace through faith. But we still need to be actively asking for cleansing on a daily basis. Think of it like in John chapter 13 when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. There's that moment with Peter, right, where Jesus is washing their feet and he comes to Peter and Peter says, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, if I never wash your feet, you can have no part of me. And Peter says, well, then just dunk me right in. It's like an ice bucket challenge. Head, hands, everything. Just just soak me. And Jesus says this in chapter 13, John 13, verse 10. He says, the one who is bathed or been washed does not need to wash except for his feet. And and what Jesus is saying in that profound moment is, you, Peter, have been washed. You stand as a washed child of God, but you're still gonna get your feet dirty in this life. On a daily basis, you will find yourself, though redeemed, as someone who will still fall into sin, and therefore you will need daily cleansing, daily confession, daily repentance, daily asking for forgiveness. Think of it like this. Think of daily confession like a Babylonian audit of your life. 
What influence is Babylon having on my life today? In my thoughts, in my words, in my deeds. How much is it getting into my life? And when we identify those things, then to repent of them and to be forgiven. To recognize that God is in an act of constantly renewing and cleansing his church. For us, it's all going to be different, right? And let me be clear. Sometimes when we identify those patterns of sin, we keep falling into those ways we become Babylonian every morning, it seems. Repentance is an active verb. It doesn't just mean, oh Lord, forgive me, and then I'll go back to what I was doing a moment ago. It means, oh Lord, give me the power to actually turn around. When we ask for forgiveness in morning and evening prayer, we say, Lord, not only will you forgive me, but help me have true repentance to turn from these Babylonian temptations. It's different for everybody. For me, in January of 2019, almost a year and a half ago, a little more than a year and a half ago, I got off Facebook and social media. I got off it and I stayed off it and I'm happier, oh, so happier for it. Now, again, this is different for each person. Some of you need social media for your work, sometimes in the context, especially of a pandemic, that's the only way you can feel connected. I found other ways to keep connected with friends and others. But here's the thing for me, what I recognized is that when I was on social media, I was constantly getting drawn into the worst part of me, getting angry at what I saw, responding in anger, or at least having all kinds of anger and frustration in my heart. I'll tell you, it's a lot easier to love your friends when you don't look at the stuff they put on social media. It really is a lot easier to love your friends when you don't see the garbage that we put on social media. I mean, when the world, when the Babylonians look at what we put on social media, do they go, oh, look at those wonderful Christians? Or they go, oh, profaning God's name yet again. As John writes in 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Babylon will know God through his church, a cleansed church. But not only, not only cleansed, but also then filled with character, God's own character. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. This language of removing a heart of stones or a heart of flesh is the language of death and resurrection. The language of someone who is dead. A heart of stone can't make you alive, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins as Ephesians chapter two says, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us has made us alive again in Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. That's that transition of heart of stone to heart of flesh. It means new life. It means to be born again. It means to have a new character living within us. As Paul will say later in Ephesians, Ephesians five verse eight, once you were in darkness, actually, no, he doesn't say in darkness, Literally, he says, once you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk in God's own character in this world. See, the nations will notice our behavior this way. They'll see us because we're precisely living differently and distinctly and strangely and like aliens in this world. We will be a people who 
like Micah 6.8, seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. A people who in the language of Matthew chapter five, turn the other cheek when struck. A people who will genuinely love their neighbors as themselves. Makes me think of St. Francis. St. Francis, who of course is one of the more famous of the saints, and I think in the context of our Praying with the Saints podcast, which coming up in a couple weeks, we'll hit our 100th episode. We've been doing this throughout the pandemic and we're just gonna keep going. This opportunity to highlight individuals over 2,000 years of church history, not who are super Christians. Understand that. A saint within an Anglican worldview is not some super special Christian. They're simply an ordinary saint, hagioi, saint in the New Testament, which means believer, an ordinary believer, saved, transformed, filled with the spirit to live a different kind of life in this world, who impact their generation with the gospel. Francis didn't just preach to the woodland animals, as he's often famous for. Francis, in the 18 years of his most active ministry, historians and sociologists agree, even the pagan ones agree, he changed the whole world around him. The world was fundamentally different after 18 years of Francis. Not just because of how he preached, not just because of the things he did, but because of the way he lived his life his character. G.K. Chesterton writes of St. Francis this way. He says, what gave Francis his extraordinary personal power was this, that from the Pope to the beggar, from the Sultan of Syria in his pavilion to the ragged robbers crawling out of the woods, there was never a man who looked into those brown burning eyes without being certain that Francis was really interested in him. You may say, Francis was a saint. I have trouble being nice to my dog. I do have trouble being nice to my dog. But the same power that was at work in Francis is at work in you and me. The same power of God to transform our whole nature and our whole character to live differently that lived in Francis and lived in Teresa of Calcutta and lived in William Wilberforce and Martin Luther King Jr. That same power lives in you and me to live a different kind of life in the world. Pure gift. Verse 27. What kind of spirit will God put within us? His own spirit. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules that God puts his own spirit into us to empower us to live differently in this world. The problem is that so often we forget we have this power living within us. It's this amazing mystery of scripture when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Though on the one hand, scripture tells us you can't be a Christian unless you have the Holy Spirit. Because 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if you can say Jesus is Lord, you've got the Holy Spirit living and moving in your life. The Holy Spirit had to come there, melt your heart, transform it, prepare it, so you could say yes to Jesus. You've got the Holy Spirit if you can say Jesus is Lord. But scripture also says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, do not quench the Spirit. So somehow, mysteriously, we can't be Christians without the Spirit, but as Christians, we can somehow quench the Spirit. 
Forget his power. Stop asking for his transformative power in our lives. So the word over the church in Babylon is to stop quenching the spirit and to ask, ask him for the character that is yours and mine by grace alone. It makes me think of Vladimir Horowitz, who was one of the greatest piano players of all time. When he was still an unknown understudy, the conductor once asked him last minute if he could play Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto. And Horowitz's response, I have it in my fingers. You have this in your fingers. You have this in your bones. You have this in your mind. You have this in your very soul and being. The spirit is yours to give you the character to live in Babylon in such a way that the Babylonians will know the Lord. As Jesus says in John 14 of the spirit, you know him for he is with you and will be in you. And just to be clear, always remember that God is much more committed, far more committed to you living like this than you are. I mean, he says in verse 22, he says, it's not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. He has hitched his name, his reputation before the nations to you and I, and he will do whatever is required to accomplish this task, even as it means the death of his own son for the redemption of his people to live a different life in this world. God is committed to this. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 as well, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It makes me think of Tim Hortons in Ottawa. Now, for those of you who don't know what Tim Hortons is for a Canadian, it's, it's a coffee shop. Uh, take Dunkin' Donuts and imagine imposing all of your national identity and personal happy choices and memories on one place. That's Tim Hortons for a Canadian. All the best moments happen there. You're on, you're on the day of your wedding. Your limo is going to stop at Tim Hortons just so that you can add that into the happiness of your wedding day. So I'm at Tim Hortons across the street from my church right across, and I, I, my office was old and cold. It was this 130-year-old building, and so all my meetings took place at Tim Hortons. And so I'd be in there every day, multiple times a day. I was going in there for four years, and suddenly one girl behind the counter one day said to me, her name's Jenna, I've changed her name for this, but Jenna said to me, hey, uh, would you ever want to chat with me at one of my breaks? And I said, sure, Jenna, I'd seen her multiple times a day for four years. And I said, when's your break? She goes, I can take it right now. I said, okay. So we took her break and we sat together and she opened up to me about an abusive relationship she was in. And I talked with her through it. We prayed with her and I got her the right help and the connections in the community. And that was that. But then a week later, Jenna said to me, could we meet again over my break? I'll take it right now. And again, we're meeting at Jenna's break. And we started talking about how much she hates God and how much pain is in her life. And we talked about that and we prayed about it. And then about a week later, again, Jenna wanted to meet on a break. You see where this pattern's heading. We talked about God. We talked about the church. We talked about the Bible. We talked about her deep woundedness. We sat together and we prayed together. 
And finally, after several months of this, I said to Jenna, Jenna, I'm just curious. Why did you reach out to chat with me? And she said, oh, that's easy. She said, you come in here all the time. And I, I knew you were a Christian. And she said, um, and you were kind. And that doesn't always go hand in hand. And you always tipped. And you always asked the person who was behind the counter how their day was going. And you seemed to genuinely care. And I saw you many times sitting in this restaurant praying with people. And I said, I think I can talk to him. When I left Ottawa, one of the most cherished texts I received along with all the well-wishing was from Jenna. And she said, hope you and your family do well in Texas. She said, I just want you to know, thanks for everything. I think I'm ready to return to church. It's hard to live in Babylon. But God has placed us here for the sake of the Babylonians. God has placed us in Babylon to be his church, cleansed and full of his character. God says, the nations will know that I am the Lord when through you I vindicate my holiness among them. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.